welcome in everyone to episode 155 of the bat flip podcast my name is damien here with david and matt so today we got a jam-packed episode for you we're going to be talking about yoshinobu yamamoto finally picking his team uh, a couple big trades and then just a plethora of kind of mid-level to smaller level moves but before we get on to all that david how are you doing how was your uh your christmas i was it was good um i know i missed the last episode but we're we're back. Um, had a had a nice Christmas, I think. Had I got to spend some time with some some family on my girlfriend's side, and um, you know, we exchanged gifts and uh, was able to you know just have some good food and have a pretty relaxing couple of days there. And uh, after kind of the craziness of trying to get gifts together, but uh, ultimately, I think everybody was real happy with everything and had a had a really good Christmas. Matt, how was your Christmas? Christmas was good. I'm still uh, struggling today from all the the uh, the calories I took over the weekend, but um, it's uh, it was good. I'm um, you know it's just good. Enjoyed hanging out with the family and uh, you know just uh, pretty laid back. We usually do Christmas at my parents' house, which is very close to where I live. So I just hung out at home most of the time and went to see them. And um, it's good good Christmas. How about yourself? Uh, how about you, Damien? Uh, mine was good. Just uh, been hanging out. Uh, I was smart and I decided to take this week off for vacation. So I have been doing absolutely nothing pretty much. Um, you know, but on Christmas, went to go hang out with some family and some friends there and um, just, you know, have a nice, chill, relaxing, relaxing time and enjoying it with some people. Um, but I'm really excited to, to jump into this episode. Um, a lot has happened that uh, I think we should be excited about. But uh, let's go ahead and start with that. The Texas Rangers ended up signing uh, Tyler Molle to a two-year, $22 million contract. Uh, he did have Tommy John surgery uh, this last May, so he's a mid-season kind of comeback player there uh, for a team that's kind of dealing with some injuries there. And uh, David, fill us in on what you think about Molle and then the other injury that the uh, Rangers are dealing with. Yeah, I'll start there. You know, Max Scherzer is also getting surgery in a herniated disc. He's out till. Uh... Till midseason, and that's a, a big bummer for the Texas Rangers, I think. But maybe Scherzer will come back and be healthy, you know, once he is back. But this is a couple of, you know, midseason as acquisitions for the Rangers that are really going to boost that rotation. And I think it's giving them some, you know, good projectability to be able to give some young guys some shots here uh, to start the to start the year. Uh, Male is really good. Uh, he was a midseason acquisition a couple of years ago by the Twins, and, uh, you know, he never really pitched for them. He just got hurt, was not able to stay healthy, but with the Reds, he had kind of had a, a Cy Young caliber season, and I think it was 2021, and he's one of those guys that uh, has been underrated his whole career. And, you know, a $22 million deal is, I think, nothing to sneeze at, but he's he's going to be a, an interesting little addition, and I think that Rangers pitching staff, which was kind of the weak point for them going into last year, um, after they got Jordan Montgomery, it felt that it, like it was much stronger in a midseason acquisition, and they're going to get two uh, pretty you know, sizable midseason acquisitions, maybe even three if Jacob Degrom can come back. Um, so you know that Rangers staff, they you know they haven't really spent any money on it yet this offseason, other than this signing. But uh, you know it, it's going to be really good by the end of the season, I think, as they try to defend the World Series. Yeah, I, I agree with you, uh, David. I, I I do. I am curious about this their strategy of I, I like this these types of moves in general where you get a kind of a, get a discount on a guy because he's not going to pitch the entire first season but you you know you like his stuff you feel like he's going to come back strong and you get a second year out of him but I mean if you look at their rotation right now for the first 
three, four months of the season. You've got Nate Evaldi, of course, who, you know, he's not without his injury concerns. He seems to, to have a, a, a decent amount of missed time every year. And then you got John Gray, Andrew Heaney, Dane Dunning, and Cody Bradford as your rotation. And this is a team that still doesn't have a elite bullpen. Um, and, you know, they're pitching, that pitching is just going to struggle. I mean, it, now midseason, if you get DeGrom back and you get Scherzer and you get uh, and you get a uh, you know Molly come back and and then you can add that to Valdi Gray you know bump a couple of those other guys to the bullpen which which was uh, something that they did pretty well last year then you, then it, you know you could end up with a best case scenario have like an elite pitching staff late in the season but um, you know this is going to be a tough division you've got two other teams in this division who are are pretty pretty talented uh, in in the Mariners and the Astros so. You know, there is a scenario where not having these pitchers for the first half of the season could, you know, the, the Rangers could play their way out of playoffs. You know, they could they could dig a pretty big hole at that point. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. But, you know, in a vacuum, I mean, I like Tyler Molly. I think he's got pretty good stuff. Um, I hated to see him get hurt after he got traded to the, uh, you know, to the Twins a couple years ago. And, um, you know, I'd like to see him come back strong. He's, he's a guy that I liked when he was with the Reds. I, I always thought pretty highly of. And uh, it sucked to see him, you know, miss a couple years. But, um, you know, hopefully hopefully he does well for the Rangers this year. Yeah, Molly has always been one of the more underrated pitchers, I thought, in my mind. He's been really good when he's been on the mound. Um you know he got bit a lot by the uh, by the ballpark there in Cincinnati. But if you look at his his splits away and his his uh, baseball savant page and his underlying metric, he's uh, he's always outperformed um, them really well. And going to the Rangers, a team where I think that you know obviously we just saw them win the World Series, but a team that is young and it's growing. Um, Molly will fit right in when he's able to come back there. So um, you know them dealing with all of those injuries, it is kind of a question mark because. I mean, you can never count on injured pitchers coming back. You just never know nowadays um, the way that setbacks and things happen. But um, you know, a nice solid deal for Molly there, and, and hopefully he can he can come back and uh, join that rotation midseason. Uh, so let's jump over to the American League Central now, where we had the Tigers sign Jack Flaherty to a one-year, fourteen million dollar contract, and Shelby Miller to a one-year, three million dollar deal that has a club option for a second season. Yeah, Jack Flaherty is a guy who had a couple of really good seasons in St. Louis in 2018-2019, but then he's just kind of not been the same guy uh, since then. He's dealt with a lot of injuries, uh, and then after 2021, where he was still pretty effective, uh, you know, he had a 78 innings in 2021, which isn't, you know, he was injured a lot, but he was fairly effective. Out of 322 ERA, the peripherals weren't that good, but they were still decent. Um, you know, he, he, he's, his walk rate has just skyrocketed since then, um, well over five walks per nine in 36 innings in 2022, which, you know, again, injuries. And then this year he was finally, you know, relatively healthy for most of the season. And, you know, the walks were still up. He had pitched to a 499 ERA, um, you know, now he, he pitched 144 innings and, and he got bumped to the bullpen late in the season after being traded from St. Louis to Baltimore. So, uh, you know, not the best season for him. Um, I think the stuff is still somewhat there. His velocity is down a touch, but not a ton. Um, you know, and there's a world where Jack Flaherty finds it again. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, one year deal for 14 million. There's not a lot of risk in a one year deal. So, 
Uh, and, and Jack Flaherty's kind of one of those, like, you probably can think of him as kind of a five starter at this stage, which I think we've seen about one year, 10 to 15 million be kind of the deals for those five starters that, that get short term contracts. So uh, I don't hate it. Um, you know, interesting for the Tigers to be out there spending. I, I think they, you know, I, th- I think this is a more wise investment than kind of the way that they spent a couple years ago. Um, and, you know, kind of bringing in some one year, one year guys who have some upside and, um, you know, if they hit, if they all, you know, do well and, uh, and everything, then, you know, you might end up hitting on something here because they do have some young talent, you know, in in their lineup. And then, but if they don't, you know, they can be trade bait or, you know, there's no risk to these one year deals. And the Shelby Miller had a interesting, uh, interesting season in 2023 where he is. ERA was a 171, which is incredible, but his peripherals didn't exactly back that up. So um, definitely nice to see him kind of capitalize on getting, you know, a little bit of a, uh, you know, getting a major league deal again after, you know, dealing with so many injuries and struggles for several years, Um, you know, that which really sucked to see. And then he finally, um, you know, had a relatively healthy 36 games last year with the Dodgers and, and pitched fairly well. So good to see him get get back although i don't i don't really think that adds too too much to the uh to the tigers next year it's just going to be some bullpen depth but um good to see uh you know good to see the tigers out there doing some things yale central is an eminently open division yeah. here uh, you know this is five or i guess four teams don't say five teams that are completely even i think going into next season right uh, you know, if the Tigers get some kind of breakout from Riley Green or Spencer Torkelson or both, um, you know, couple that with maybe some resurgent performance from Javi Baez and, you know, maybe Gary Carpenter can keep up what he was doing last year. This is a team that could definitely turn some heads and make some midseason acquisitions with a pretty strong prospect pool. Um, but, you know, in the in on the on the op side, right, where if this team underperforms again, you know, signing one-year contracts is always going to be useful. If Shelby Miller can prove that what he, you know, what he found with the Dodgers was repeatable and repeatable in another environment like Detroit, then he'll be a very valuable trade piece come July. If, uh, you know, if, if Jack Flaherty, you know, Kenta Maeda and these guys, if they can, you know, go to Detroit, kind of take advantage of that ballpark, um, you know, use that to suppress their runs. I mean, the D- Detroit could either have really good team success or could, you know, have some, you know, at least one of these guys break out to where they can get a pretty solid uh, return on them in midseason. So this is ultimately a very big win-win for Detroit. And, you know, I think this is a good place for a guy like Jack Flaherty to go try to get back on, back in the groove, you know, with uh, with regards to run suppression, because that seems to be his problem right now, is he needs to, you know, keep the ball in the strike zone and he, he can afford a few mistakes in Detroit's ballpark. It won't hurt him quite as bad as when he's having to play in Cincinnati every third game, you know, so um, I, I think this is this is good from them, and uh, we'll see who, who actually steps up to win the AL Central, because it is wide open. Yeah, the Jack Flaherty deal this year kind of really screams like Michael Lorenzen last year, who did the exact same thing with the, the Tigers, you know, went over there, was their all-star representative, had a 358 ERA, a 386 FIP, and then they flipped him at the deadline to Philadelphia. Um, that's, that just screams like what this is. Go to a good hitter for a, a pitcher friendly ballpark, suppress the runs like David was saying. And then, you know, if you're Detroit, if that's going cool, you just keep them. If not, you get a decent piece at the deadline that people will always look to p- pick up some pitching. Um, it doesn't matter. And even the same goes for Shelby Miller. I mean, one year, $3 million. I mean, if he's good too at the deadline, a team might be willing to, to pick that up 
and have that option for the next season as well. You know, I think the buyout is 250k. I think that's why it's 4.25, but I could be wrong there. Um, you know, but for a team, if they're doing a playoff run, you want to pick up Shelby Miller and then buy him out at the end of the year for, you know, 2.5 or, you know, 250K or whatever. Like, that's no, no big deal either. So um, good moves by the Tigers for both of this to maybe capitalize on the division, but they're not overly uh, overly expensive deals that where if you get into a bad spot, you know, at the deadline, they're easily flippable uh, players. So uh, let's stay in the AL Central to a team that's kind of doing the same thing, and that is the Kansas City Royals, who signed Hunter Renfro to a two-year $13 million contract as a player option for the second year, uh, and then also signed Michael Waka to a two-year $32 million deal that has a second-year player option as well. I mean, the, the Royals are operating in the same vein as the the Tigers and that this division is totally winnable, right? Like, you know, the Royals have a bona fide superstar already in Bobby Witt Jr. Um, they, you know, they need some, some of their young guys to kind of break out and follow in his footsteps offensively. But, you know, this is a team that has found, you know, a superstar in Cole Reagans potentially, right? I mean, they've, they've gone out and gotten good production from some of the guys, you know, like in this vein, you know, they went and brought Zach Renke back. He was pretty decent last year. You know, they've, they've had success before and obviously they signed Seth Lugo. So now adding in Michael Waka and, and Hunter Renfro to this team is just, it's trying to buoy it, you know, a team that, that isn't really ready yet. But if, if these smaller deals can kind of work out, this is a team that can make the playoffs in a very weak division. If it doesn't work out, these are guys who could totally, you know, perform well enough to get moved um, for a decent prospect return. And since both of them are a two-year contract, you know, it's, you know, maybe a little less likely that, that those get taken on. But it still makes, you know, for the Royals to have an interesting team for the next couple of seasons with a couple of guys like uh, Hunter Renfro, who's a big power guy, you know, hits th- about 30 home runs a year. He's not a, you know, real good guy for on-base percentage or batting average, but he'll provide that that slug, and those guys are always valuable, especially ones that can play defense in the outfield. Hunter Renfro is a, a very solid corner outfielder defender. Um, you know, Michael Walker was good last year, right? He he wasn't he he wasn't um, a prob the problem for the Padres in their rotation. You know, he made 24 starts and he had a 3.22 ERA. Um, I'm honestly surprised he went here. I kind of thought Waka's market would be a little bigger than two years, 32 million. I, I thought that was kind of a three or four year type of type of deal to be made. He's only he's only reaching age 32 right here, and uh, this is two consecutive seasons with an ERA that starts with a three. So um, I'm a little surprised Waka didn't get a longer term deal, but you know the Royals are going to get a hold of him, and if he keeps up that 3.3, he's going to be a very valuable uh, you know starting pitcher in this rotation next year. Yeah, I'd, I could go either way on these deals. Um, for one thing, like you said, I think the Royals are probably were probably a little bit better last year than their record ended up being. Uh, they dealt with some injuries, and and they had you know just they just had some bad luck too. I mean, they're they're the fact that they were the, 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 the fact that their record was like the second worst in baseball behind the A's was not. I don't think that I think they were probably a 90 loss team on paper, but you know, they just had a bad record in one run games and stuff and were not good. So, uh, but you look at the, you look at them and I mean, the division's so bad. 
I just don't think I, I think the difference between the Tigers and the Royals is the Tigers have some form of upside with a couple of their young guys and they've they've got young pitchers that have been injured off and on the last couple of years. Like, you know, you got Scooball, Manning, and Casey Mize who have all been really high end prospects at times, have have shown some ability at the big league level at times, but they've just dealt with a lot of injuries. Uh the Royals don't really have that outside of just you know, Cole Reagans for half a season where, you know, everyone else in that rotation seems to me uh, to not be great. And then, you know, their lineup's got a lot of holes in it still. I mean, I don't know if this is going to make them even, even in that horrible division, they need to do a lot more than this to be able to contend. And, you know, and, and I would say that, you know, the, the contracts here, I mean, $16 $16 million a year for the Royals is a pretty big amount because, you know, we just, the fact of the matter is whether we like it or not, they're going to run a low payroll. I mean, they're not going to spend a lot of money. And, um, you know, just, you know, Michael Walker is a guy who's outperformed his peripherals the last couple of years and go into a situation that may not be the best. And then, you know, that second year, if, you know, theoretically, if the the Royals maybe in year two of these deals could be better, you know, they can build over this year and then you know maybe maybe get better that following year. Like the year two is a player option, so if Waka performs extremely well, then he's gone. And you know, same thing with for Hunter Renfro. But if they end up being sunk cost contracts and they're back now, Hunter Renfro's contract's a lot cheaper, and I think he's got a higher floor. As in, he's going to play decent defense in the corner, and he's always going to hit for power. So, I mean, I think, you know, two years, 13 million. I don't, I don't have a problem with that for the Royals, but just, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't love the Waka deal for them, but, I, you know, I, it could go either way. I mean, Waka could do well, and in this division, I guess if everything clicks for the Royals, they could maybe compete this division because the division's so bad. But I, I just, I, I'll be, I just I don't understand these fully. It feels like Rockies-type moves where they, don't really understand where they where they are in their rebuild. Yeah, so I mean, you were talking about you know sixteen million for the Royals is a lot. That's the second highest amount on their payroll right now. Um, so Walk is going to be Salvi, back right? behind Salvi. Yeah, um, you know they they did sign Lugo, which I think he was at fifteen million dollars, so he's just right behind that um, behind Walker there. But you know. I think this is the, the Renfro deal. It's somebody that slugs is going to a non-competitor. Like, like David was saying, that's easily flippable too. like, somebody's going to always look for a potential power bat. And Renfro is an extremely streaky, streaky player. Um, so if he's in the middle of one of those streaks, you know, right there near the deadline, a team might be able to pick that up. The Waka one, you know, he's been really good the last couple of years. Yes. He's outperformed his peripherals. Um, I think going to Kansas city, which is an extremely pitcher friendly ballpark as well. Um, that might help a little bit more. And then even if he does, you know, opt in at $16 million, like we were just kind of talking about, like Jack Flaherty just went for 14. Walk is at 16. Like, you know, if, you, if you're talking about a player, you know, next year's market, like I could go sign a player like that for 14, or I can spend up for a guy who's had maybe three good years um, in a row in Waka for 16. Like that's an extremely like valuable contract for a team. Um, like the Royals that could potentially get a couple of buy low pieces and they're dealing with a bunch of pitching injuries that side anyways. So at the worst case, you get, you know, a veteran here this year who comes and eats innings while your young pitchers are, you know, rehabbing from some injuries. And then he's gone at the end of the year anyways, and it turned into a one year deal. That's not really that bad. And if he's back, you had a guy you could potentially flip. Like 
is it the best move? No, but at least, I mean, they're a team that's trying to make some moves um, and potentially, you know, get some veterans in there and see what they could potentially do and help those young guys a little bit. Even if these guys don't move the needle for the Royals, I'm, you know, it's good to see that, hey, if they work out and if some, you know, Brady Singer comes back and pitches like he did in 2022 with a 3.2 ERA, you know, may- maybe the Royals do make moves going back forward. But, you know, if not, it, it's not the type of move that's going to bury the franchise forever, like the Rockies, right. you know, signing 10 year deals and stuff. It, it's very much a short term, short term game, long term, no, you know, long term, no loss. Right. Uh, so let's move over to a team that we have consistently cracked on for a while, but the Oakland A's have made a free agent signing. That's more than we can say for the Cubs. Um, the Oakland A's have signed Trevor Gott to a one-year, $1.5 million deal. Uh, just a small reliever deal, but hey, the uh, the Oakland A's did something. I like this deal. Trevor Gott was low-key pretty good last year in, mm-hmm. as a whole. Uh, you know, his ERA wasn't great, but a 325th. Uh, it's expected ERA according to you know Statcast numbers was a 340. He had a lot of a lot of swing and miss. Uh, you know, not a lot of walks. I mean, I, I think this is a good signing over one one point five million. There's been there's been relievers that are way worse than him get like five or six million dollars. So I, I think this is a great signing for the A's, even though it doesn't really move the needle at all for them. I mean, they could flip him at the deadline and get some kind of lottery ticket and you know basically. Like basically get a free, decent middle reliever. So I, I mean, I think it's a good move. But I mean, it's the A's, so it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all about July and who he goes to, you know, and how well he pitches in Oakland. It, being able to perform well in that in that environment with that you know situation and the, the team around him. You know, those are the guys who you know they're going to get flipped and they're going to go to a bigger spotlight. And can they keep it up? So that, that's the big question for Trevor Gott here. He's, I think Matt's absolutely right. It's a good signing. He's a good pitcher, I think, who uh, got a little bit, got a little bit shafted. Maybe he accepted the deal too early in the off season, but uh, you know he, he's going to end up on a contender, I think, this year. Yeah, it's a solid piece that could potentially be flipped at the deadline, pretty much. Um, so let's go to our uh, the NL West champion or not champions, um, the NL West uh, <laughs> the NL runners champions. up, the NL champions. That's what I was NL trying to say. Um, in the Arizona Diamondbacks that re-signed Lourdes Gurriel uh, Jr. to a three-year, forty-two million dollar deal with an opt-out after year two. Um, if he doesn't opt out, it becomes a club option for the fourth year at another fourteen million dollars. Um, but just making the the uh, you know, bringing back a guy from the Dalton Varsho trade now with Gavin Moreno. Now you got Gurriel signed long term. Um, makes that trade look really well. Uh, again, after I think it was just like a year yesterday was the uh, uh, was the the year mark of that trade. But anyways, Diamondbacks returning a, a guy who was an All Star for them this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I like this move for the Diamondbacks. It's basically the Jorge Soler contract that the Marlins gave him. Uh, so in a similar kind of type of player where he's probably going to be – he's a little more consistent at the plate without quite as much upside as, as Solaire. But, you know, he's going to be a, a, on a little bit above league average hitter every year. Uh, he plays better defense than Solaire, but, you know, not not the best defender out there. But he's fine out in left field. Uh, he's actually pretty good there this year. It's his best year defensively in his career. Um, you know, he's had some weird seasons where – you know, like 2022, he had a 343 on base, but he only hit five home runs and 500 plate appearances. And then this year, he had a 309 on base, but he hit 24 home runs and 600 plate appearances. It's just been 
kind of a weird a weird career for him. A uh, guy who hits the ball really hard, but has at times struggled to get it off the ground. Um, you know, it's one of those types where he could end up, you know, having a couple seasons where he does lift it a little bit more and has just a breakout season or two. Um, you know, kind of like his 2020, which was the shortened season, but he had a 134 WRC plus in 2020. Uh, that's a pretty good signing. I mean, you're looking at, you know, not, not, a, not a huge amount of money, um, really market value for a quality left field slash DH type option. And I think Lord is Guriel will do, you know, he'll, I think he'll repeat his 2023 season. It seems fairly sustainable. I think he'll repeat it two or three more times and be a, um, you know, be a quality, a quality player for the, uh, for the uh, Diamondbacks for a few years. I like the Diamondbacks offseason so far. I mean, Lourdes Gurriel is, I mean, he's a perfect six or seven hitter in your lineup, right? He's never going to, he's never going to go nuts and wow you, but he's always going to be a kind of a tough plate appearance. He's going to hit the ball hard and, you know, he, he's a nuisance for pitchers there. And, you know, the type of guy that, oh, yes, you, you can, you know, oftentimes you can finally breathe because you got through the heart of the order, you know, Corbin Carroll and Christian Walker and Kettle Marte. Now, now you got to face Lourdes Gurriel, right? He, he can take advantage of that. And, you know, d- you know, being able to play that guy down the order, you know, being able to plug Eduardo Rodriguez in after your two good starting pitchers. I just, you know, and adding Eugenio Suarez uh, defensively and then with the power uh, at third base. I just, I like this Arizona offseason. You know, it's not a, it's not going to win their division, <laughs> but it's a good offseason. And it's going to keep this team, you know, relevant, I think, for the wild card next year. Uh, yeah, Lord, you know, bringing back Lourdes Gurriel brings back that locker room presence as well. He seems like a, you know, by all accounts, a good guy. And, uh, definitely was one of the leaders of that team last year as they went to the World Series. So a uh, very, very solid move, maybe even a bargain, I think. Uh, you know, that's not a – he only has to get like 1.5 war to, per year to, to outplay that, and I, I think that's pretty attainable. Yeah, I think it's a really savvy move by the Diamondbacks. Um, keeps a guy who's also uh, a big clubhouse guy there. You saw him was very energetic last year. He, he was able to keep that team – um, you know, when they went through that really lull stretch, they started really hot and then they kind of tapered off for, for a couple months there. Like Guriel was always a guy that was, um, consistently high energy and just making sure that they never, never got too low on themselves and, um, was a big, big performer for them in the playoffs as well. So, uh, really good deal for, for the Diamondbacks there. Uh, let's stay in division and move over to the San Francisco Giants who, Signed catcher Tom Murphy to a two-year, $8.2 million deal uh, that has a club option for a third year at $4.1 million. This is straight up a backup catcher signing, right? I mean, he, he's going to back up Patrick Bailey and, uh, you know, spell him and work with the pitchers. Uh, you know, it's just a you know solid move. Um, you know, the Giants go ahead and get their guy. Joey Bart kind of gets the pressure released from him, and it's kind of it's Patrick Bailey's job now, I think, so... Uh, this one seems pretty straightforward, you know. I think uh, backup catcher market not too, not too wild, not too crazy. But uh, you know, Tom Murphy's got a little pop. He'll be, uh, he'll be just part of that that Giants catching group, and and uh, you know maybe he can lead those two young guys into into the future a little bit. Yeah, I agree. He's a pretty good backup catcher. Um, guy who you know he's had a couple of decent seasons with the bat even though he, had, he didn't play a ton but you know last year played 47 games at a 140 wrc plus so uh which is pretty solid he, he's not the best defensive catcher for a backup uh but he's he's fine and um you know it's, it's a solid signing for them they they need somebody to spell their young catcher they probably don't want to play him every single day and uh you know four million a year for a 
you know, a perfectly fine backup catcher is really solid. So it's a good move for the Giants. Yeah, that seems to kind of be the going rate um, right now. I think Austin Head just got four million dollars. Um, and I'd rather have, as well. I'd rather have Tom Murphy than Austin Hedges by a mile. So without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump over to Pittsburgh, where the Pirates re-signed Andrew McCutcheon to a one-year, five million dollar deal. Yeah, I'm glad for Andrew McCutcheon. He gets to stay in Pittsburgh. I know he really enjoyed being back there in 2023. Had a pretty good season, a 115 WRC plus. I mean, at this stage in his career, he's just a DH. But if he can repeat that, I mean, five million dollars is a huge bargain. If he can repeat that, what the season he had last year, um, I think he's, you know, obviously doesn't really care that much. He's had he's had his big contracts. I don't think he cares that much about making a ton of money. I think he just enjoys playing in Pittsburgh. He's a fantastic clubhouse guy for them. The city loves him. I'm very glad he's back with the Pirates. Yeah, he had a good season last year, right? He had a like I think a 370 on base percentage last year. Um, yeah, 378 on base percentage last year. So this is a guy who who can still walk. He still has the eye for the plate. He's still dangerous enough um, to not get the ball down the middle and draw the walks. You know, he's he can punish it. And I'm, you know, he'll 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 start against lefties and and against a number of the righties. And hopefully they can keep him healthy. He managed you know 473 plate appearances last year. So uh, you know, I think with the addition of Rowdy Telez to kind of work at first base and DH. You know, along with Connor Joe, I think those three guys are going to handle that. And, um, you know, I think that the, the Andrew McCutcheon in Pittsburgh is exactly, you know, it's right. It feels good. It's uh, it's what he needs. And hopefully he can, you know, keep carving out that what I believe is a Hall of Fame career uh, and, and kind of get those counting stats up and, and finish out strong. So he's only 37. He's probably got a couple more years left in it. Yeah, Andrew McCutcheon in Pittsburgh is just a story that feels right. And uh, making sure that he's in Pittsburgh when he hits uh, homer number 300. He's at 299 right now. Yep. Um, so he's going to be able to hit his 300th homer um, in a Pirates uniform. It just makes all the sense in the world. And it's probably the case now where he's at the year in his, the, the point in his career where he said, I'm going to sign one-year deals and I'm only going to sign in Pittsburgh until it's it's over for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so really glad that Andrew Kutch is back. Uh, in Pittsburgh, and and we'll see what he's able to do, and look forward to him hitting number number three hundred. Uh, so let's jump over to the to the biggest free agent pitcher signing that we've ever had happen in uh, baseball, and that is that the Dodgers signed Yoshinobu Yamamoto to a twelve year, three hundred and twenty five million dollar deal. Uh, does have player options after year six and year eight. Um, and they gave a uh, deal slightly backloaded. So those years he'd be walking away from a little bit more money. Um, but worth noting too, that the Dodgers paid a $50.6 million posting fee to the works Buffaloes. That is not included in the $325 million. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can start. Um, I mean, I, I thought that Yoshinobu Yamamoto would get about 200 million and maybe a little bit more because of his age. Uh, he's had a fantastic career in Japan. He's won their their version of the Cy Young Award twice, but three um, times. or three times. Yeah, I mean he's, he's a fantastic MVPs. pitcher. He, he's 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 a fantastic pitcher in Japan. Uh, one of their best pitchers they've ever had, and um, you know he's going to come over. And we've seen some, you know, we've seen some really really successful pitchers come over from Japan. You know, you look at you Darvish. I mean, you look at think of the Dodgers. You think of Hideo Nomo. Um, Otani, even though he was kind of more of a prospect type guy when he came over because he was so young, 
but you know Yamamoto's only 25. Um, I think there's a tiny bit of there. There was a little bit of concern about his size. He's only like five eight, five nine, five ten, one seventy. Five, yeah. He's 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 not real big, so there's a little bit of concern about him. He throws really hard, so you know how well how durable he's going to be. He's been extremely durable in in Japan, but uh, I mean, I I think there's a chance that this could work out great. I mean, he could end up being like, you know, the next, you know. I, I guess I, you know there's really not anybody like him that's come over from Japan before. So, but uh, you know I think it'll take a little bit of an adjustment period. We've seen that with just about every Japanese pitcher that's come over. You look at like last year with Kodai Singa coming over, there was a little bit of an adjustment period in the second half of the season. He looked a lot. He looked really good. Um, I think that uh, Yamamoto could have a similar type of adjustment period. You know, like like he did, just because you know the ball's different and. Um, you know, it's just the, the, the speed of the game, the, the, the hitters you're facing are, di- are different. Even though the Japanese league is extremely good, you are going to be facing better competition, obviously, in the big leagues. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how this works out. I mean, it is pretty wild that the Dodgers just paid a pitcher who's never thrown in Major League Baseball the high, biggest free agent contract a pitcher's ever gotten. I, I think that's that's just wild to me, but... Uh, you know, good for the good for Yamamoto. I mean, you know, you don't have to throw a pitch in the big leagues, and you're making you're going to make three hundred thirty million dollars, which is pretty awesome for him. And uh, I mean, it could work out great for the Dodgers. They obviously needed a top of the line starter, and they believe that Yamamoto can be a top of the line starter. So you know, it, they kind of checked another box in their off season. I mean, Matt well, said it right. It's absolutely bonkers to pay. A guy who's never thrown a major league pitch, the most money of any pitcher of ever, right? But this situation is completely different, I think, than I think even than we were expecting, right? Because the Dodgers were not the only team to offer Yamamoto three hundred twenty-five million. Not only that, the Dodgers were not the only team to offer him at least three hundred million, right? We know both New York teams offered him three hundred million. We know the Mets offered him three hundred twenty-five million, and he chose to go play with Otani in Los Angeles and with the Dodgers. Um, the deal includes opt-outs where he could go get another contract around or bigger than this size if he performs well. Um, you know, and that's at like age 31. I think it's a very normal time to opt out for, for this, this type of player. You know, this is just a, a crazy deal, but it's a crazy deal that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think a lot of the risk gets taken out when you factor in that, he, you know, the upside is all there for a starting pitcher, and he's 25 years old, and the Dodgers have him for at least six years. Um, you know, the, it's a more of a backloaded contract anyway, so you know, it, it's it's going to make sense, I think, over the long run to to for him to make this decision. I think it's pretty obvious that players are not choosing the Mets, which is interesting, right? And, and I don't know where the Mets are going to turn now. But, you know, the Dodgers, just the rich get richer, right? You know, you go out and you make these types of deals. Yeah, you're going to go into the red. Yeah, you're going to pay the luxury tax. Yeah, you're going to lose the draft picks. But if the Dodgers win the World Series, it none of that matters, right? And, and they're setting themselves up to do exactly this, to go out and win the World Series. To, they're setting themselves up to be primary suitor for Roki Sasaki, for Muniteka Murakami, right, when those guys come over eventually. So I just... You know, the, the Dodgers are doing everything right. The The thing that bothers me is that no one else is willing, uh, you know, and able to, to go out and 
you know, make these kinds of signings and, you know, the electric signings that can kind of energize the fan base. Because, I mean, I, I saw the thing, the Dodgers tickets for opening day are already like $1,000 on secondary market, right? It, it's, a, it's a big demand because they want to go see these guys play. Um, you know, I, I just, this is a, the kind of deal baseball needs, but it is objectively crazy to pay somebody this much, you know, the most of any pitcher of all time that has never pitched an, an inning of major league baseball. Yeah, and I, I, I want to push back on one of those things. I don't think they were the only team that was interested in paying these contracts. I mean, I, I no, think. Oh, no, that, yeah, that's, yeah, that's like I, no. Yeah. We, I, I, I mean, we, was, we've heard already reported that yeah. he, Yamamoto, I mean, the Mets were the one to offer Yamamoto this yeah. deal first. The Dodgers he, matched it. I mean, yeah, he brought it to the Dodgers and they matched it, right? And we've also known from reporting now that the Giants and the Blue Jays had the same exact contract offer for Shohei Otani. Mm-hmm. Um, with all the deferrals and everything, and he chose he chose the Dodgers as well. Um, you know, and where it was, Yamamoto just had his press conference today, and it was also worth noting that like his agent also said that, um, you know, had the Dodgers not been the team that Yamamoto yeah. went to, it, it, it was probably San Francisco, because um, San Francisco reminded him a lot of what Japan is like. Yeah, I was gonna say he's, so, he's, he, 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 West Coast for sure. Yeah, a lot of these Japanese um, guys. Yeah, so we knew New York's the both New York teams were in it three hundred million dollars for the for the Yankees, and it's funny that the Yankees didn't want to offer um, Yamamoto more than three hundred and twenty four million dollars because they didn't feel that he should be paid more than Garrett Cole. Um, so there's that, and then the Mets had offered you know like we said they they were the first one to offer this deal um, here, but it seemed like Yamamoto just wanted to be with Otani and he wanted to be in LA. Cause even he said during the conference that even if Otani wasn't here, he was most likely going to end up a Dodger. He, he just wanted to come to Los Angeles. And it's basically the same thing. Otani, like Otani wanted to be a Dodger as well. Um, now LA is really cornering the market uh, on Japan. Uh, they're trying to become the strongest team market in Japan. They take over all the fan base there. And like David said, they've set themselves up for Roki Sasaki, Munitaki Murakami and anyone else who, any other Japanese player that wants to come over um, to the major leagues, you're going to have the option to come, come to the Dodgers, you know? So it's going to be interesting to see how it works out because like Matt mentioned, he, you know, he is a smaller framed guy. Um, He does throw the ball a little different. He uses his whole body to throw the ball rather than his elbow. He does some quirky, you know, warm up things. Like he doesn't play long toss. He, he throws a javelin instead. Um, he does some some other things, so it's going to be interesting to see how how he translates over, and then with the small frame, how he's able to hold up, um, you know, for the long term here. But it, it's kind of a, a, a no lose situation for the Dodgers here because they paid also a fifty million dollars signing bonus, so the actually yearly cash going to Yamamoto in it on a back loaded deal, like it's really not that much. Um, and then if he opts out after year six, you know, it's th- you got basically the better half of his prime years um, uh, for that contract. So, uh, but one thing before we move on, I wanted to look at what our predictions for Yamamoto was. Uh, Matt, you did guess the Dodgers. You guessed at nine for 200. David guessed the Red Sox for 10 at 210. And then I guessed the Giants at 10 for 225. So we were all at least a hundred million dollars off um, on this one and short on years. Uh, so there's that, but. Uh, let's jump over to the next signing that we had, which is also another Japanese player coming to the West Coast, and that is Padre signing left-handed pitcher Yuki Matsui to a five-year, $28 million deal. Uh, there is a player option 
uh, after year four and year five. Um, but the 2028 year can become a club option for $7 million if Yam- or uh, Matsui has a elbow injury during the length of the contract. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this one. Um, you know, the Padres obviously have targeted their bullpen this offseason. Uh, a lot of the Soto trade was guys that are going to help their bullpen. Um, you know, and then you, this signing here. I mean, I, I just I feel like if you're a team that has a huge payroll crunch, like the Padres have shown that they do with trading their best player uh, because they couldn't afford him, uh, that reinvesting that money in an unproven you know, Japanese guy who, you know, it's not a lot of money, but still, you know, it could be, you know, there's a chance that it's a $6 million sunk cost for the next five years. So it could be good, but I, I don't think that, I don't think that the, I don't think that the reports on him were that he's a surefire, like really good MLB pitcher. I, I think the reports on him were that he had some potential to be a nice setup guy from the left side, but that he was kind of a, question mark a little bit so um i guess they feel like if if he pitches to his potential that maybe they can get a bargain on that but uh still uh, you know it, uh, if you're the padres it feels like you would want to sign you know more I, I i feel like signing relievers to five-year contracts is probably not what i would do this offseason with their payroll crunch but i, I mean i i guess you know, after the Soto trade, maybe they do have a little bit of money to spend because of saving the thirty million there. And you know, they decided to they decided on this guy. So we'll see we'll see what happens. I might be totally wrong on him, but um, you know, I, I just I don't fully understand it. I agree that the the reasoning for the Padres being the team to take this risk is the wrong reasoning. Um, you know, they're a, that's a team that needs stability. That's a team that needs projectability, and that's a team that needs cost control. And this guy is kind of none of those things, right? I mean, he's he's kind of expensive given the the potential level of of wildness and ineffectiveness that comes with you know volatility of relief pitching in Major League Baseball. And then you know, on top of that, this is a team with roster crunch and a and a big time you know they they have big time needs in the starting rotation and you know it's like you could have taken this you know it was a 28 million you could have maybe tapped five or six onto it and just gotten Michael Walker back you know that 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 seems like it might have been a better use of your money but um overall I I don't know that I I I dislike Yuki Matsui at all I don't think he's he's a bad option right this is just kind of the Josh Hader replacement right lefty fireball lefty from the for the late innings but you know, I just this is um this is a, one of them AJ Preller moves that doesn't really make any sense because they need starting pitching I think more than they need bullpen I think if I had to pick between Yuki Matsui and Eniel De Los Santos for who's going to have the better season I think I think I'm picking Eniel De Los Santos but that's that's because he's pitched in the major leagues and I I kind of had him as one of my guys that would you know be a sleeper for next year and be really good and you know surprisingly and um you know Yuki Matsui. And who knows, right? So, and he's getting a lot more than Daniel De Los Santos. Yeah, see, I'm on the other side of this. Um, I I actually like this deal for the Padres uh, quite a bit. Matsui is he he's a late inning left-handed reliever for 5.6 million that uh, is really really tough on lefties. Has a nasty cutter um, and and slider. Uh, he he's a lot more affordable for than a guy like Josh Hader is and you're not going to find um, a guy that is has the potential upside that he's going to potentially be able to have 
um, in the back back end of the bullpen for five point six million dollars, and be you know at what twenty? I think he's twenty seven right now. Going to be twenty eight probably by the time opening day is. Um, I I think you need controllable pitchers. Controllable lefties are always a good thing. You're always looking for left handed pitchers in general. Um, yeah, you know you could have said we they should throw that extra money, you know, and, and maybe get a starting pitcher, but um, you know, to be able to to lock down another piece of your bullpen there where you're going to have um it's gonna basically be controlled and in three years five point six million dollars for a lefty um in the bullpen. I don't think that's that's gonna be a bad thing at all, especially for uh for the type of pitcher uh, of the stuff that I've seen from him in Japan and through the WBC um and stuff. So they stu- still do need to work on some of that pitching. Um, but what we mentioned also, they got like seven pitchers from the Juan Soto trade that like probably two or three of them is going to go into the rotation anyways for them with uh, with Darvish and Musgrove and and uh, the rest of the pitchers they got there. So I, I like it for the, for the Padres. Um, but let's go up to Seattle where they signed Mitch Garver to a two-year $24 million deal. I love this move. Um, you know, Mitch Garver was playing DH for the, the world champion Rangers. Um, he's, he can still catch a little bit. Right. And I think that that's the key is, you know, we talked about Tom Murphy earlier, kind of le- exiting Seattle. Will Mitch Garver enter Seattle? He's, I don't think going to be the primary catcher. I think he'll probably primarily DH with, with Cal Raleigh catching, but, and, uh, Sebi Zavala backing up, but, but as a guy who can moonlight in as the third catcher and give rest to your primary catchers, you know, with a guy who hits the ball as hard as Mitch Garver does, uh, who torches lefties as well as Mitch Garver does, you know, he becomes a really, really valuable offensive piece. And, uh, he might also be able to spend some time at first base, but luckily the Mariners have tie France there. He fits in really nicely at DH for them. And he, he's a better, a better fit because he makes more contact than T.R. Hernandez does. I just, you know, this is a slam dunk move. This is even less than I thought Mitch Garver was going to get. I thought for sure he was getting at least a third year. Uh, and 12 to 15 was where I had him. So I was figuring, you know, three for 45 was kind of what I was expecting for him to get. Because I figured, you know, this is a guy who hits the ball really hard coming off a 370 OBP type of season. Uh, you know, he gets hurt a decent amount, which is the rub. But if he's just DHing, you might be okay. And, yeah, I mean, he gets two for 24 from the Mariners, and, you know, they look like geniuses after moving on from Suarez and uh, and Teoscar. They get a guy who's kind of inarguably better at the DH spot than both of those guys would be. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in mostly in agreement with you. I, I think it's a good signing for the Rangers. I mean, not, not the Rangers, from the Rangers, by the uh, Mariners. Um, he, um, you know, he's had some really good seasons. He's got a career 123 WRC plus as a guy who – he can play catcher. He can catch some. He's not the he's not the best back there, but if you need him to, he can come in and be that backup catcher. Uh, definitely an offense first guy. But uh, you got Kyle Riley there, so it's not that big of a deal. You know, you can ha- have games where you want to give Kyle Riley some time off, but you know, maybe like if you're up in the eighth inning, you can throw Kyle Riley back there type thing and uh, let Garver just DH or you know go out of the game or something but as you mentioned the, i think the big knock on him is even even though he has typically been a dh for a lot of his career uh injuries i mean he's only his career high in games played is 103 back in 2018 um you know he only played 87 games this year 
Uh, now that it was a really good 87 games, he had a 138 WRC plus, but it was still 87 games. You know, year before in 2022, he only played 54 games. 2021, 68 games. So this is a guy who's often been really good when he's played, but he's often been not playing. So uh, you know, I think that definitely dampened his his market. Uh, if you can get a season where he DHs primarily and he plays 140 games and he catches some, then you know you might be looking at a huge bargain with that two-year, $24 million deal. But um, I think you just, you know, the player, he, his market was just not quite the same because you just don't think you can rely on him to be out there all the time. So uh, definitely a good, in my opinion, it's a good signing because even in, you know, 87 games, if he can repeat what he did last year, he put up over two war, which would make, even if he only played 87 games, that, that makes that $12 million a year worth it you know, at two over two war. So, um, you know, hopefully he's able to stay healthier than that and make this a real bargain. But I, I, even if, even if he doesn't play, especially you know, it stays, stay healthy all year. He's still, you know, going to be a solid pickup for that price. Yeah. I feel like you could do a lot worse at DH for more money than Mitch Garver. Um, he's, he's a consistent hitter that, like you said, once he's healthy, if he's able to stay healthy, he fits this team perfectly. Um, he'll be able to to catch some there, even maybe moonlight some at first base. Um, I mean, and we might even, I mean, who knows? Like, they do have Ty France there, but now they have the hole open at third base with trading Eugenio Suarez. Like, maybe France plays a little bit more third base, and then you get Mitch Garver more first base there too. It's just another option. Um, that allows them some flexibility depending on what the rest of the offseason looks like for Seattle. But this deal in a whole, I, I think it makes a lot of sense um, for a team that uh, has had to shed some payroll and we were kind of worried about what the payroll was going to look like potentially. Um, you know, I think Garver at what $12 million is a, is a steal. So uh, let's jump over to the Toronto Blue Jays who re-signed Kevin Kiermeyer to a one-year $10.5 million deal and then signed Isaiah Kiner-Falefa to a two-year $15 million deal. Yeah, I, I, I really like the Kiermeyer deal. Um, he's a, I think Kiermeyer's a pretty underrated player. Um, he's a guy that, you know, he's still elite defensively. And I think a lot of the, the narrative around him has been that he just can't hit. And I mean, he's not a great hitter by any means, but he's been roughly a league average hitter for his career. He's got a 98 WRC plus, and over the last four years, he's basically been that. He had a couple of really bad years in 2018, 2019 at the plate, but he has largely been a league average hitter for his career. Um, you know, comes from the left side, which is something that the the, the Blue Jays have, have typically needed, and you know. Last year, he had a pretty solid season there, a 104 WRC+, plus, which is his highest since 2017. Uh, played 130 games, la- or 129 games last year. So, uh, you know, he was playing every day for the most part. Um, and, um, you know, he- he's still elite defensively. So, like, the floor is he's a fantastic defender. You're only paying him, what, what was it, $10 million a year, you know, for one year. I mean, that's a really solid deal for me. Um, you know, if he can repeat last year, that's a huge bargain and there's really no risk to it. And then, uh, IKF is a guy that I think I'm not quite as high on him. I mean, 
he doesn't hit the ball hard at all. Uh, doesn't get on base really. I mean, he does. He does make a lot of contact. He's very versatile. He's a utility guy. But when you kind of look at the grand scheme of you know the all the utility guys and how much they're getting paid, you know, you could probably find somebody that's a similar type of player to IKF as a minor league free agent. Honestly, I mean, he just doesn't do a whole lot. So, you know, last year he put up point two war uh, for the Yankees in 115 games. Um, I know he can play everywhere, but, I, you know, how much different is he than a guy like Nicky Lopez or something? Like, and that, that's getting paid a lot less. So I, I don't know if I love giving him, you know, I mean, seven and a half million dollars isn't you know, a ton, but it's real money. I mean, it's not it's not like a minor league deal or something. So. I didn't. I don't especially like that one, but I do like the Kiermaier signing. My best guess is that I guess they're kind of for Leffa is Davis Schneider insurance if Dave Schneider struggles, right? Like I'm just not entirely sure what that one's all about. You know, eight million dollars on for two years too on a guy. This feels a lot like you know what what happened with the Cubs last year with Trey Mancini, right? You try to get a guy off a struggly season. You know, try to get something back where he what he was before, but that seems to kind of be gone. And you know, a two year deal winds up hurting you more than uh, more than you would otherwise think for you know someone who's at least productive when he plays defense. But I don't know, kind of if it doesn't make sense. I echo you on that, and I also echo you on Kiermaier. I think he's a you're going to be a rock solid center fielder for the Blue Jays once again. Um, it the big question I think is does this take the Blue Jays out on Cody Bellinger. I don't think it has and, any bearing. Well, where are they going to play him, right? Like first, got base, a first baseman, right you field. Got a, <laughs> yeah. George Springer's playing right field. I, yeah, I just, but you, in, you in shows in left field. They've spent a lot of assets on their outfield to this point. That's ten more million dollars on Kevin Kiermaier, and you'd be sticking him on the bench too. Yeah, I don't. Your first baseman should be a DH. Yeah, they yeah, got two catchers they, who can hit in every day, and it's it's a very questionable fit now. And, they have some flexibility. I think it, it impacts the Bellinger thing minimally. Um, they do have some flexibility there where you can move people around um, consistently. And then even if Kiermaier is on the bench, that's a, a very good defensive replacement later in the game yeah. that could come in. You can move Bellinger to first, Kiermaier to center. Like, it, it, is it Bellinger a perfect fit anymore? No, but it still does give them potential flexibility to move things around. Um you know, in general. So uh, let's move over to the Chicago White Sox. They signed Martin Maldonado to a one-year, $4 million deal plus an option. Matt, I know you love this signing. <laughs> this might be the worst signing of the offseason. Martin Maldonado was pretty easily the worst player in Major League Baseball last year. He was terrible offensively. He had a 66 WRC+. plus. He was even worse defensively. I mean, just absolutely horrible behind the plate last year defensively um and then his war negative 1.2 war last year and he only played 117 games he's not like you know somebody on a bad team who's been given like a you know a super long leash and plays 160 games and puts up a bad war number like he accumulated that in a a not super long amount of time uh I, i truly do not understand why you would sign him to a major league deal i mean now I know that he's shown a lot of leadership qualities and he was beloved by the clubhouse in Houston. So if you bring him into a bad franchise on a minor league deal, just to see if, you know, you kind of maybe need somebody like then fine. But I mean, 
there's literally no reason to give this guy a major league deal. I mean, I, I just I don't understand it whatsoever. I mean, it doesn't help anything. You know, I, I don't I don't get it. For, for as much as I like what the Royals and the Tigers are doing, I <laughs> the White Sox are making me laugh, man. I between Maldonado, Paul DeYoung, um, you know, the Max Stassi, Max Stassi and Martin Maldonado is your your catching core. Um, they are just loading up on guys I think no one else wants. Right? And Nicky Lopez is another one from the the bummer trade. They got a bunch of those types of guys. They got Mike Soroka, and now it's they're just trying to fix things that are not going to get fixed, right? That, that's the big issue with the White Sox. Like, you know, my, Paul DeYoung's just really not the type of player anymore that can handle a starting shortstop job, but he's got one, right? It's kind of the same thing with Yohan Moncada, too, right? Where this is a guy who's kind of been broken for a while, and I don't trust the White Sox to handle these types of things at all. Um, you know, the idea, obviously, is that Maldonado leads your young pitching staff, and they get a little marginally better, but I mean, it, the, the the Astros got worse last year, right? So, like, the, that was the worst their pitching's been in a few years. I, I don't, I don't foresee this working out very well for the White Sox. And hey, it's the backup catcher rate, right? Four million dollars, but yikes! Yeah, it's uh, well, it's not great. To say he's not the backup catcher. I mean, it's him and Max Stassi right now. Like, it's they might get a timeshare. I think he's gonna. Yeah, absurd. I mean, he's gonna start. Cause, I mean, Max Stassi didn't even play last year. So, well, the White Sox are tanking. That's probably this is this well, all yeah. calculated. They want to lose. Sure. They do have Corey Lee too, but that's yeah. also not great. Um, uh, so two ten OPS last year did Corey geez. Lee in his major league stint. I, I just saw yeah. Him. Uh, I'm surprised he had 15 homers. You know, he hit 191. I wouldn't be surprised if all 15 of his hits were homers or something like that. <laughs> but um, that was all for the free agent signing. So let's jump over to the trades that we've had happen. Um, and the big one also involved the Dodgers getting Tyrus Glass now and Manuel Margot from the Rays for Ryan Pepio and Johnny DeLuca. Um, Tyler Glasnow, as part of the trade, then signed a four-year, $110 million extension uh, where the last year year of the deal is a club option at $30 million. Um, if it's declined, it becomes a $20 million uh, player option. This is a slam dunk trade, right? Like, you know, and, and I think the extension is, let's, let's take, let's take them apart one by one. The, the trade is an absolute slam dunk. Um, the Dodgers take on Margo's contracts to lessen the prospect return. Pepio and DeLuca, you know, Damian and I spent a good deal of time talking about that return because it was kind of the rumored return until it got finalized because they were waiting for Glass now to accept the extension. It's it's a lot, but it's not as much as it could have been. It is where I land is you could have the, the Rays definitely could have been charging more for Tyler Glass now here, and the fact that he does sign the extension makes this much a much more palatable deal where you lose Pepio, who's got, I think, four more years of control, but you're getting five years of control of Tyler Glass now, and the Dodgers have a very deep pitching group, and they only give up one member of that depth, so they effectively replace Pepio with Glass now in their rotation. Margo is a net, a sunk net cost. You'd probably rather have DeLuca next year anyway, but it's like, you're the Dodgers, who cares, right? Like, the rest of your lineup is a Death Star. Margo will hide. He might even be good because of this. You'll be fine. So the trade is a slam dunk. The extension looks looks expensive, but it's one, it's the Dodgers who cares. Two, like if Tyler Glasnow is healthy, he's the Cy Young favorite. 
trading for him was always the right move for the the, the signer of Shohei Otani because Glasnow was on a one-year deal. He was very expensive this season, and you know if you let him walk, Otani just fits into your rotation. Well, if you can convince the Tyler Glasnow to stick around and pitch with Shohei Otani, which it, it, clearly they do, you know there's there's no there's no question here, right? This was the obvious best move, and um, yeah, I mean this is just you know once again I said it before, rich get richer, Dodgers get did Tyler Glasnow, and you know this was the logical next step for the team that signed Shohei Otani, so. Uh, looking forward to seeing Glasnow and Yamamoto pitch in the playoffs for the Dodgers. That'll be fun, as long as Glasnow's not hurt, obviously. But that's the that's the only rub for Glasnow is the the injury history. Everything else is just excellent. Yeah, and I mean, I this trade was really weird for me because I think if you look at the trade in a vacuum, Tyler Glasnow and Manuel Margot for Ryan Pepio and and Johnny DeLuca, I think the Dodgers definitely win that trade. Like I, I, I don't. I'm not a huge believer in Ryan Pepio. Um, and and Johnny DeLuca is a, a fine, you know, fourth outfielder prospect type. But I, I'm not a huge believer in him as like some kind of, you know, huge everyday player. And I, and it's just one year of Tyler Glass now. But you know, I think it was a pretty fair value for the Dodgers and getting a guy like him. Um, so the, the only the only pushback I'll have on the Dodgers side of that is that. I think the Dodgers really need stability in their rotation as much as anything else. And, you know, when they, what they brought in this off season, you know, their rotation right now, you're looking at Walker Bueller coming off of second Tommy John surgery, hadn't pitched in a year and a half. You're looking at Tyler Glass now, whose career high in innings pitch is 120. And you're looking at, you know, uh, you're looking at Bobby Miller, who, you know, is, I think is a pretty good, will probably eat a pretty decent amount of innings, even though he's young, you, you don't really know for sure, but it, he, he seems like a guy that, that ha- doesn't have a huge injury concern. But then you look at Yamamoto as a, a kind of an unknown. So, you know, you think he's going to be really good, but we've talked about the frame and the durability question with him. So that's the only thing about the Tyler Glass now part of this, like that I think that, that maybe like a Dylan Cease, who is a pretty good innings eater, might um, – might have made a little more sense for the Dodgers, but I think that with, with this trade on the table, I think it was fantastic uh, value for the Dodgers. So I, I think I would make this trade if I was them. It's just kind of weird for me with another guy that's kind of, you know, often injured uh, in their rotation. But then, you know, the, the extension part of it for him, um, you know, I, I was we were talking the other day. I said it's just like the Zach Wheeler contract that he got for, for, from Philly. Um you know, you're looking at a guy who's – it's real similar kind of their history. You know, Zach Wheeler was a guy with this elite caliber stuff, really good peripherals, been injured a lot. He kind of came on that last year, looked like he might be – looked like he might play the part, and then the Phillies signed him to the deal that they gave him, which was real similar to this contract, and he, and it's worked out great for them. It looks like a real similar type of contract to what Tyler Glass now got. You know, four, four to five years, um, you know, you get that um, – you know, roughly twenty-five million a year, and you're getting a guy that has that type type of talent that could be like a Cy Young caliber pitcher if he stays healthy. So it's going to be very interesting to me to see if he stays healthy, and if he does, this is a fantastic trade for the Dodgers. But that's really just the big question mark for me is, you know, it's another guy that is, uh, you know, often injured that they've that they've got in their rotation. So uh, definitely think it could work out like amazingly for the Dodgers, but this is also a little bit of a risky trade here. Yeah. So going into the off season, and I think we, I've had conversations with in our chat about, you know, about the glass now 
potential trade before it ever happened. And I was on the side of, hey, I would rather have a deal and cease. I would rather have somebody who has more control than one year um, and and less injury risk to them. And then the Glassnell deal happened and the extension and, you know, the the actual trade for it. If you would say that Johnny DeLuca and Manmar Marco are even players, but Marco is $10 million and DeLuca is league minimum, you'd rather have DeLuca. Um, this was the Rays shedding the salary on that side. Pepio doesn't have as much upside, has been injured himself. Um, so you look at it and you say, well, you'd rather take glass now on that side of that anyways, including long term. If with the extension, um, it's basically the same amount of time for each one. Um, so as far as the glass now injury stuff is concerned, um, his high in the majors is 120. He has thrown, I think, over 150 one time, which was 2017, I want to say, with when he was in Pittsburgh. Um, but I did find a podcast that he did this last year, just kind of once I was diving into some stuff and listening to him talk about what the injury really was those three years. It was essentially that his UCL had torn off the back of the bone rather than where they normally see the tears. Um, so the, the MRIs and stuff they did never saw it until he finally did his quote unquote Tommy John, which he didn't do Tommy John. He did the internal brace procedure as well. Um, where learning what that is, it's basically a band that they tie into both sides. And that band is basically Im- unbreakable. Um, so I'm not worried as much about the elbow as I am. He dealt with oblique injuries in the past too which is kind of tied to the back there and him being six, eight, that's where I'd be more worried about the injury concern um, because he is so tall and he uses his back so much um, rather than the elbow, which was what we've seen for three years, but that's what he was been dealing with the same injury for the three years. Um, You know, basically since the 2020 seasons when it really first crept up or actually 2019 is when it first crept up. Um, But on the upside is, like David said, Glass now is an, a Cy Young favorite if he's healthy. Um, and then now the Dodgers having Yamamoto, Glass now, Bueller, Bobby Miller, the you know impending return of Otani next year. Um, you know you just you feel a lot better about that rotation than you do of a rotation that coming into the offseason was. You know, I guess Ryan Yarborough was your number two, like. You know, you still have Sheehan, you still have the depth in the prospects behind them, but now you have upside on that with Yamamoto, Glasnow, and everywhere going forward. And then Marco is basically your platoon for Jason yeah. Hayward in right field anyways, that can back up Outman in center field. Like, that that goes. So take the risk on the talent and hope that it works out here. That's, well, that's my view of it. If there's a team equipped to handle the risk of Glasnow, it's the freaking Dodgers right like especially yeah. now now that you got you know Yamamoto sitting there too like I mean come on well for sure and if there's a team that we've seen in the past work around people pitchers that have injury concerns like I mean look what they did with Rich Hill for a while look what they've done the last few years with Clayton Kershaw like I don't think anyone's coming in expecting Tyler Glass now to throw 190 innings or whatever but if you're saying that, hey, like we're going to try to get you to the 150 to 170 ish area, if there's a team you kind of trust to do that, it's the Dodgers because it's basically what they've already done in the past, anyways. So. You mentioned him, but what what is the sleep Kershaw now is is another big question. Is 
is there still room in this rotation for Kershaw, or does he finally head uh, over to Texas? Rangers going to well, get another midseason acquisition. Yeah, <laughs> another mid-season I was going to say the Rangers are already so midseason like pitcher injury risk as it is. Like Kershaw, I mean Kershaw, I think even fits even more now because if you know you have Kershaw coming back midseason or somewhere there, like you can already know like Walker Buehler is going to be delayed as it is. They've pretty much announced that without actually formally announcing that he's going to be delayed to start the season to help with the innings cap. But once you get Bueller back, if you know, Hey, like last now we're going to give you a little bit of a break. Now we have Clayton Kershaw to insert back in. Like, I think it, it kind of works there. Um, and I, I expect Kershaw to be back. I just don't think that that's going to happen until uh spring training because yeah. the 60 day IL slot doesn't open until then. So that makes sense. Uh, so let's jump over to a couple smaller trades that we had happen. And the first one is the Braves acquiring Matt Carpenter, left-handed pitcher Ray Kerr, and Cash from the Padres, Drew Campbell. And they have subsequently already released Matt Carpenter. So this trade was basically a salary dump to get Ray Kerr. Yeah, the Braves purchased another hard-throwing reliever. Um, they basically, they've done this a few times. I think p- part of the Braves' issue you know, in their bullpen the last couple of years, if there's been a weakness there has been that they don't really have a lot of hard throwers. Uh, you know, a lot of their, their top guys have been, you know, not, not super hard throwing. And, and especially from the left side, they've had mentor that you don't know what you're going to get from Matt sick coming off of Tommy John surgery, but the, your other guys have been like uh, Dylan Lee, who's also dealt with injuries and, and Brad hand last year. You're, you have a lot of soft tossing type guys, Will Smith in the past, now you're, you're kind of going in with Aaron Bummer and, and Ray Kerr and bringing in guys who throw really hard from the left side. And uh, Ray Kerr was pretty good last year. He, he did have a 433 ERA in 27 innings for the Padres, but he had a 324 XFIP, uh, lots of swing and miss, not many walks. He gave up a lot of home runs last year. You think that, that that home run per fly ball ratio might go down some. It was really high. You know, relievers are volatile, and that's one of the reasons why. Um, you know, in AAA last year, he was pretty good. Had a 2.25 ERA in AAA. Um, you know, this is a guy who's got the potential to be a solid major league reliever. Has a ton of control left. I think he's got like five years of control left. So uh, you're getting him for just basically taking on a couple million dollars of Matt Carpenter's salary because you did get cash with him. You've already released Matt Carpenter, and you gave up a guy that's got an 87 WRC plus and double A as a 25 year old last year. So you're really not giving up anything. So um, I, I like that trade for the Braves. Um, you know, I think they do need to still get a, a starting pitcher. So I'm waiting for that. But uh, as of now, I, th- I think some of the, a lot of these small moves they've made have worked out pretty well for them. Here's the question is, would you rather have Ray Kerr or Yuki Matsui next year? That's essentially the choice the Padres made and they chose Yuki Matsui. Um, I I kind of think they're really similar. And, uh-huh. you know, if the Padres just did not have a bad internal evaluation on Ray Kerr, then fine. But, you know, they're both 28. Ray Kerr costs a lot less, right? Like, I just, I don't know. It feels like you kind of, you should probably work with that guy to try to re- reduce those home runs without, you know, giving up your, you know, giving him up, I guess, just to get rid of Matt Carpenter and then, go in and signing a more expensive lefty to fill that same role. I don't, I don't know. It's, see, it, the math doesn't work out for me on that one. Well, I guess it really it comes down to would you rather have Matt Carpenter or Yuki Matsui? Because it's basically the same contract, basically. So. Yeah, and, and ultimately, I think if, the, if you, you take the money from 
Carpenter and apply it to Matsui. That makes sense. But I guess I don't know. I I think I think that that's, that that's works. Basically, I guess. how I look it's at just, it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it that's, makes it more was, sense. It's Carpenter just... was five million, five point six for Matsui. So you basically get off the the contract of of Carpenter and his unpredictability to go to Matsui, um, which is that's, a need that you have fair. more than than a lefty bench bat or whatever. So and props uh, let's jump over to our last... the contracts. I was going to say props to the Braves for yeah. using the contracts <laughs> to buy good players. That's something the the teams with a lot of payroll flexibility need to be doing more of. Yeah. And then the Braves acquiring, you know, Aaron Bummer and Ray Kerr two people who could be good lefties for their bullpen this off season. So okay. uh, let's jump over to the last trade that we had happened. And that was the Yankees and guardians uh, on a deal that saw the Yankees acquire uh, relief pitcher, Cody Morris from the guardians and that the guardians getting outfield prospect Estevan Florio. Yeah, I mean, I, That's I, what I like this said. for the Yankees. Yeah, I mean, I, I like this for the Yankees. I mean, Florial was blocked completely by the their new outfield, and he's not very good anyways. He did have a 130 WRC plus in AAA last year, but, you know, he's a 25-year-old. He's been at the big leagues in parts of four different seasons and hasn't hit at all in the big leagues. Um, so I'm not huge on his potential either. Um you know, I guess he could be kind of a fourth outfielder, but you know they got a guy who was at one time pitching really well for the for the Guardians. He had a bad 2023, but before that, he had really skyrocketed through their system, looked really good. So, um, you know, you kind of get a guy that, that maybe has some some potential, throws pretty hard, um, you know, and and is had some history of success in the minors for a guy who's not going to have any role in your roster. So, uh, I think it's a good trade for the Yankees. Yeah, I mean, yeah, adding bullpen help is always crucial for these teams. But the, and if there's a team that needs outfield more than they need pitching help, it's the Guardians. So, uh, very logical trade. I don't know that I, I think I'm with Matt. I think I like it more for the Yankees. I think you'd rather have a, a hard throwing bullpen righty than a kind of a career AAA guy like Florial seems to be. Uh, but he'll get a chance to start for Cleveland, and he'll get a chance to to shoot, show that he can do this. And will he uh, will he get a chance as an everyday player? Because I don't know that he will play over Quan or Miles Straw or whoever. I mean, I, I'm assuming in right field they'll play somebody more with a little bit more pop. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, maybe he's I just mean, a I, bench he, guy for him. But. That or he could be a potential platoon for yeah, Miles Straw. That's possible. Yeah. They I could mean, also try to move off a of Miles Straw here. That's that's true as well. Yeah, there there's there's options there. Um, I think you just kind of the the talent of Florial. You kind of take the bet on what if you could potentially get a change of scenery guy there. And Morris was a guy who probably just didn't factor into their bullpen that the Yankees um, are just kind of strengthening, trying to strengthen their bullpen a little bit. So, and and move off a guy that they weren't going to be able to use, especially now with their outfield um, with all the moves they've made this year anyways. So, uh, so let's jump over to, we had MLB announced some more rule changes this off season. Oh, I'm sorry, Rob Manford, you clown. Um, <laughs> let's go. So let's look at the changes that they made. Um, they did a pitch clock adjustment last year was the first year we saw the pitch clock. It was 20 seconds. Well, they've moved that down to 18 seconds, uh, took two seconds off with runners on base, uh, mound visits. They've reduced them from five per game to four per game. Uh, the runner's lane to first base has now been widened into the infield 
grass area. So that old play where we see a player bunt and then run on the infield grass, the ball get thrown at them and then question if they were in the line or not. Clearly they weren't. And then they said they were safe. Now they'll basically be there anyways. Um, and then a pitcher warming up who was sent out to warm up before an inning must face at least one batter. Not that this was ever an issue. You have the three batter minimum anyways. I'm guessing this is just trying to circumvent a team from saying their bullpen arm wasn't ready. Send the pitcher out, to their starting pitcher out uh, to warm up and then basically subsequently go out there and just pull him from the game to allow the reliever to get more warm up pitches. Uh, not that that was ever an issue anyways. But with that all being said, Let's go ahead and start with David. What do you think of the new rule changes and the fact that we made a pitch clock adjustment after one year for the games being seven minutes longer from April to September? I I hate that, right? And it's not that I dislike the changing of the pitch clock. I thought I thought the difference was a little wide between runners on base and runners not on base. I, I think this is a change that you could have done, but I wanted more a bigger sample size of, of pitch clock games with the players getting used to the pitch clock as we used it last year, because I thought the pitch clock was a really good change. I thought it was, it definitely improved the pace of the games. It did what it was supposed to do. And baseball games are going to take longer in September anyway, because the bad teams are going to throw more pitchers and there's going to be more bullpen, you know, movement in the middle of the games. And then, you know, there's going to be more, you know, urgency. So managers are going to, to make more pitching changes late in the season anyway, because those games are the games that are affecting the playoff race. Like it, it's very logical that, that those games are going to take longer. So trying to fix that with this little patchwork seems foolish, but this isn't a terrible, like the pitch clock one's not terrible. Mountain visits, I, I don't see why we needed to make any adjustments on that. The mount, what are we, I, I oftentimes see like only one or two mound visits used anyway, so just leaving the limit up doesn't, you know, changing the limit doesn't change the amount of mound visits that are taken in a game, right? They're still going to use one to two, maybe three. Like, I don't know. It seems like we're, we're trying to solve issues that aren't there. And then the runner's lane, that just is finally making it legal to you know, do what they were calling legal anyway, where the guy's running on the first base side gets hit by the ball. Like it's fine. Like at that point, I'm just, you know, they, they weren't calling it right before. Now it'll be right. That it's amending it, whatever the pitcher warm up thing shouldn't be a big deal. I thought it was, cause I thought if you pulled up a guy in the bullpen, then they had to come in that, that would have been really bad. Um, this is a, a non-issue. The pitch clock thing is the biggest, the biggest thing here. It's just, I wish we had more more time with the the original rules because I wanted to see how those worked. And if next year you start at the ending year, you know, game times and then go up, you know, seven more minutes, okay, then you have some justification to reduce the, the on-base pitch clock, but I, I don't see it. I think the times will be back to normal and then they'll rise a little bit as the season goes on and that's just how it'll be. So just to, just to be clear on the pitcher warming up thing, um, Basically, that's if a pitcher pitched the previous inning and comes back out, like they're going yes. to pitch the next inning, they can't pull them. Okay, that's that's what yep. I'm assuming because what yep. would it matter? Like, because it, it says a pitcher who has sent out, so yeah. it's obviously not a pitcher from the bullpen. And even if it was a pitcher from like the bullpen or whatever, we have a three batter minimum. Yeah, so it doesn't matter anyways. I think all it's trying to do is circumvent people potentially saying their reliever wasn't ready, right? And mm-hmm. to send their their pitcher that did the last inning out. And then let him throw like two or three pitches or, or even the full time go to the batter gets announced. And then you basically go and call a reliever. 
Yeah, that, so so that rule makes sense to me then. Uh, yeah. You know, if it was a pitcher warming up in the bullpen has to go pitch an inning, that would have been the dumbest rule I'd ever heard. But that's the that, I, this I just, rule, you know. Cause, it just wasn't a problem. Yeah, well, right. I will say that it doesn't happen very often, but when a pitcher when the when the when the manager comes out of the bullpen or comes out of the dugout after the guy's already warmed up for the inning and then makes a pitching change, that's one of the most frustrating things to watch in baseball. Like, we have, how often does it happen? It doesn't I mean, happen very often. About, so, so the rules really we, it's going to be a non-issue. Did, but yeah, did we make a rule for something that happens less than ten times per year for every? I like, mean, combined for every team. Yeah, but I mean, it's like it doesn't. Like seriously, you know it. Making a big deal out of it isn't a, isn't isn't anything, but like it, it's not, you know, I, I don't I don't mind the rule in itself, um, you know. But the pitch clock reduction, I mean, I, I don't know how much different the twenty seconds to eighteen seconds is going to be. You know, you're looking at when when they changed the, the the biggest part of the pitch clock change with the time of game was without runners on base because there was pitchers that were taking twenty two, twenty three, twenty four seconds between pitches without runners on base, then they have to throw in 15. But the difference between 20 and 18 seconds isn't going to be very much. I mean, most most pitchers are throwing at 17 seconds anyways. Um, but, I mean, I like, like David said, I mean, I, I don't understand why we really needed to change this. I mean, pitchers got used to 20 seconds, so I feel like it probably should have stayed at 20 seconds. You're asking pitchers not only to, you know, to adjust every single year for – no, really, no reason. I, I don't, I don't like that a lot. Um, but you know, I don't think it's really good. I don't think when you watch games, you're going to notice it that much. Um, the mound visit thing. I mean, I, I, I don't understand why we're limiting from five to four on mound visits. Um, I don't. I, I think that you really need to have five mound visits. I, I, I think that sometimes. You know, I don't think that's a big deal. You know, having a pitcher reset, especially with the pitch clock, you know, sometimes a pitcher needs that breather for a second. You know, when they're having to throw a lot of pitches in a short amount of time and, and just reducing the amount of mound visits probably doesn't help that a lot. And then I actually like the runner's lane thing because I, I do think that could reduce collisions occasionally. Um, so that, that, that could be a, a good thing to help prevent injury. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think these rule changes, it's, it's nothing like this dramatic as what we had last year. And I'm glad they didn't do some radical change to the pitch clock. And I'm glad they didn't do some radical change to the shift rules again, like there had been talk about. Um, but I think that the, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I could kind of go either way on a lot of these rules. It's not, I don't think they're that big of a deal. So as far as the runner's lane thing, it's not going to limit any more collisions that's already happening anyways, because players were already doing it. It's now just going to make the umpire not a judgment call. Yeah. Like, because players were already running basically outside of their running line anyways. And there's the first base bag isn't moving. It's staying in the same spot. So all it's saying now is where the runners were running is now completely legal. Actually, I think it might turn into more collisions because now it's legal that it's all the way over there. There's no, there's no actual question about if it's legal or not. And you don't turn into it. Players are going to be running there more often. Um, like right-handed hitters, especially because it's a straighter line. You don't have to worry about running more outside. You basically just can run straight and just stay on the, the grass there. And it's less, you have to move to the right to be able to get to the bag. Like, I, I think that doesn't that, you know, the, the pitch clock thing in general, I wasn't a fan of it initially coming in. It's grown on me now. I don't mind it, but especially changing it after one year, the, the runners on base perspective, and especially when all the players voted no, on all of these changes 
And there was even a, a point where players, especially heading into the postseason, were asking for more time with runners on base. Like hitters and pitchers were both asking for more time with it. And now you just you just brought that down anyways. Like it's just it's extremely stupid. It's extremely like out of touch with the game. Game times were already down to what two hours and thirty nine minutes this year. Like, what do you really think that you're going to take out of this? Like with the two seconds per pitch clock thing, the one the reducing one mound visit when teams weren't even most teams weren't even using all their mound visits anyways. This isn't anything that's going to help speed up the game dramatically anyways. Like, what do we think we're gonna shave off another two or three minutes potentially if that i mean if that you know like it makes no sense it's just completely out of touch and it's just rob manford trying to wield his power to make more changes into the game that nobody wanted um and and make his impact felt more that's literally all this is to me so anyways um as far that's going to wrap it up for what we have to talk about uh, for this episode. Um, but to announce kind of what we're looking at moving forward, um, we have been recording on Tuesday nights. I think we're going to plan to start jumping to Monday nights uh, starting January 8th. So after the new year, we will start recording on Monday nights. Um, Hall of Fame voting is announced on the 23rd. So expect an episode probably on that day. Um, about the Hall of Fame and what our ballots and stuff would have looked like. Um, but other than that, we'll be on Mondays moving forward. Uh, so anything you guys want to to hit on or, or wrap up before we end the show? I'm very angry about some of the Hall of Fame ballots that are <laughs> leaving off yeah. Andrew Jones. And oh, I saw man. a couple that left off Adrian <sighs> Beltre. And it's like, man, that, what, are, no. what are we doing? Do, do you did you guys see the one? I don't know if I sent it or not. My favorite favorite ballot this year was the guy who voted for I think it was Todd Helton and one other guy, and then was like, "Well, see, I see all you people are angry, but players can get voted on for more uh, later years." And the guy's like, "Well, I wonder what your rationale for Gary Sheffield is," and he was just like, "Well, I can always vote for Sheffield next year." Oh my God! Not saying that know. Sheffield's in his last year of oh his thing, God. and that's a Hall of Fame voter who also said that. Well, I used to believe in voting for ten people, but now I only vote for two per year, and I can always vote for them later, including Gary Sheffield. The one that the one that just got me was the Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez ballot. Those are the only two. That's the one that got me. Uh, that one, yeah, yeah. That's just. Look, looking forward. I'm looking forward to being able to unleash the wrath for a while. Uh, I have more to say about that than closing statement. Yeah. Yep. So, anyways, thank you guys for tuning into this episode of the Batfoot Podcast, and we'll catch you guys back here on January eighth.